You're listening to The Game Changers with Jason Jennings. Leadership lessons in speed, productivity, growth, innovation, and reinvention. Now, here's worldwide best-selling author and speaker, Jason Jennings, and your host, Dale Dixon. Yes, welcome to the inaugural podcast. This is The Game Changers with Jason Jennings. I'm your host, Dale Dixon. These podcasts are all about your business, leadership lessons in speed, productivity, growth, innovation, and reinvention. And Jason Jennings, so good to be with you on the podcast today. Uh, Dale, it's great to be with you as well. So we say this is the inaugural podcast. This is our chance to get to know Jason Jennings and also get a chance to learn more about what we're going to be talking about each week during this podcast as we look at uh, your books and and what you talk about in your keynote addresses. But uh, tell us about how you launched into the the type of work you do and include in that the type of work you do. Well, my background, Dale, is that I began actually as a radio and television journalist Uh, moved into the ownership of radio stations. Out of that came a very lucrative, for many years, consulting practice, uh, consulting radio, television, newspaper groups all the way around the world. Uh, About a dozen years ago, uh, when I was 44, I was sitting in the family room one day, and I went to stand up. And and physically, I could stand up, uh, but I, I felt like I had the burden of the world on my shoulders, and I sat back down, and I just had this heaviness come over me, And although I'm too young to remember this singer, Peggy Lee, I do remember the lyrics of one of her songs. As I sat down, I went, is that all there is? I mean, is that all there is? I'm just going to keep buying and selling radio stations and and, and consulting people around the world. And I realized uh, that my soul uh, was not being fed. I I guess you could call it a midlife crisis at 44. And uh, so interestingly enough, I, I thought that I might go back to seminary, become a second career seminarian, and become a theologian. And I entered into discussions with a man by the name of Dr. Timothy Lull of the Pacific Theological Union in Berkeley, California. And uh, he said that would be a big move to become a second career seminarian in your mid-40s. Uh, he said, I think we better have some dialogue about this. And so over the next several months, uh, we got to know one another very well. And at the end of several months, he said, look, if you want to come to seminary, we're like every other college, come. We need the money. He said, but I would just rather have you give large financial gifts to us. He said, but I have figured out your calling. And I said, excuse me? And he said, in getting to know you so well, it is obvious that you love business done well. You love leadership done well. And you have little time for leadership and business done poorly. He said, I think your calling in life is is to identify the greatest business leaders, the greatest companies in the world. And he said, I think that's your gospel. He said, I think that's the gospel that you need to be talking about. And I remember, Dale, that that's the first time I ever had a sleepless night. I, I laid in bed and I was looking out at the San Francisco Bay going, God, send me a thunderbolt. I mean, if this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And by the next morning, it became crystal clear. I uh, needed to get a book contract and and that it was my calling. And, and, and so, so it did become crystal clear because that is a that's a paradigm shifting kind of a life change. Uh, that's a life change. I mean, it sure is. And, uh, but it's also why I tell people that, uh, look, I'm a competitor and I want every year, uh, I want there to be more speeches than the year before. I want my books to sell very well. That's the competitive part of me. But I think the thing that surprises most people is, um, in many respects, uh, this is a calling. Uh, I, I, I feel called, truly called to do what I do. Uh, it, it is a thrill of helping lead principled people and principled businesses uh, to their full 
economic potential. And every morning when I wake up, wherever I am, no matter how far I've traveled, no matter how tired I might be, and I might have a huge day ahead of me, I, while I'm shaving or brushing my teeth, I look in the mirror and I go, you know, you are without doubt one of the most fortunate, blessed people on the planet for getting to do what you do, to do this research, uh, to write these books, uh, to give these speeches, uh, to be paid to do it, and then and then receive somewhere between 80 and 100 emails a day from people who have read books and, and been at speeches. So um, so that's the story of, of how it all happened. Uh, I, I'm somebody who, uh, early in my business career, I was tough. Um, and uh, I used to have a saying, there are reasons and there are results, and don't ever give me the reasons, just give me the results. And, uh, and, and I had achieved a modicum of success. I remember getting my first book contract, Dale, um, was the most humiliating experience that I've, I've ever had in my life for someone who was used to achieving results. I probably had a hundred rejections and with uh, each rejection, uh, I became clearer and clearer that my first book would be published and that it would become a bestseller. And I almost relished uh, getting the rejection letters because I would just smile and think I'm tougher than you are and I'm going to get this done. And uh, 12 years ago, I, I got my break. Uh, HarperCollins um, decided to publish my first book, my publisher, Adrian Zackheim, who I'm still with today uh, at Penguin Putnam. And, uh, uh, and there's a great story about that first book that was titled, It's Not the Big That Eat the Small, It's the Fast That Eat the Slow. And it was a book about speed. And uh, I, I recall the book was about to come out, and I asked Mr. Zackheim, I said, how many copies do you think it will sell? And he said, well, nobody's ever heard of you. You're an unpublished author. Uh, there's no promotional money behind it. He said, I don't know, maybe 10,000 copies. He said, what do you think? And I said, I don't know, a million? And he looked at me and he said, from your lips to God's ears. Well, what he didn't know, <laughs> what he didn't know, and here's a story that you'll, that you'll like, and, and I seldom get to tell. I haven't told this story for years. Uh, about two weeks before the book was going to come out, uh, I got a telephone call from a man by the name of Craig Kitchen. And Craig Kitchen was the CEO of the Premier Radio Networks. And they owned uh, the Rush Limbaugh Show, Dr. Laura, the Jim Rome Sports Show. They syndicated about 100 shows across the United States. And he said, when's your book coming out? Uh, and I said, I said, in a couple of weeks. And he said, well, he said, I have a question for you. He said, do you remember that a year ago uh, you came out to the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs and did an executive training session for me for my top leadership? And I said, yes. He said, you remember that I didn't pay you because I had no money in the budget? And I said, well, don't mention it. I mean, that's what friends are for. And he said, well, it's payback time. He said, uh, put together a commercial for your book, send it down here. I'm going to give you a million dollars worth of free advertising. And Dale, the day those ads hit, uh, the book became not the number one business book in America. It became the number one book in America, a position it occupied for, for, for several weeks. And uh, so that's one of my favorite stories about, uh, about karma and, and that whatever you give, I mean, it does truly come back tenfold or, or a hundredfold. And, th and that's how it all began. That is an amazing story. Let's, let's go into that first book then and uh, the bestseller. What was, what's a paradigm shifting thing that you learned through the research in that? Well, um, let's first of all, put it in context of time. Uh, the book came out in uh, 2000, uh, right before the dot-com crash. And every young person was, uh, uh, who, 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 who could write code or thought they could write code, thought they had a startup and they were, uh, dressed in black 
and uh, they were hip and they were going to change the world. And it was all about speed for speed's sake. And uh, there were literally thousands or tens of thousands of uh, internet startups that maybe had an idea, but they had no idea how they were going to monetize it uh, or what the plan was. In fact, the plan was based on pure greed. We're going to build this company. And before they even had their first dollar of revenue, uh, they had already figured out their exit strategy, how they were going to have a, a Learjet and a, and a big boat and a place in Boca Raton on the canal. And, and so everybody was fast for the, for the sake of, of, of just being fast. It was just a flurry of activity. Um, and, and I guess for me, uh, during the research for that book, I came to realize that, that some of the fastest companies in the world were actually headed by people who you would say were plotters and, and, uh, and physically maybe a, a little slow, that, that, that speed actually came down to fast thinking not a flurry of activity. It came down to fast decision-making, not just a flurry of activity for the sake of activity. It came down to fast to market, uh, not just because of a flurry of activity. And then it was the ability to maintain momentum. And the big discovery in that book that I still talk about a lot today is that truly fast organization. If If an organization or a company wants to be fast, Achieving velocity, achieving speed is actually very, very simple. Uh, In in fact, it's as simple as falling off a log. Uh, The problem is falling off a log is not easy because first you have to find a log and then you've got to find some water. You've got to get the log in the water. Then you've got to get up on the log. The falling off part is is actually very easy. But what incredible companies have uh, that allow them to be very fast is they have a set of six, seven, or eight guiding principles. Now, it became popular a decade ago for every organization to proclaim that they had a set of guiding principles. And I would tell you that most guiding principles of most companies are not worth the paper they're written on or the digital space they occupy for this reason. Nobody in the organization knows them. Uh, One of the favorite things that I get to do is uh, I I fly a lot, 360,000 miles a year, and I'm generally upgraded to business class or first class. And I I love to take my seat up there. And uh, all of a sudden, some guy sits next to me and it's kind of like, I'm not going to talk to him, and he's not going to talk to me, and nobody's going to talk to each other. And then finally, a few minutes later, somebody says, hi, I'm Jason. Hi, I'm Michael. And, and I said, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a senior vice president for a drug company or whatever might happen to be. The last one was a drug company. And we start chatting, and I love to look at them and say, um, let me ask you, uh, d- does your company have a set of guiding principles? Well, of course we have a set of guiding principles. Well, you know what my next question is, don't you? I say, well, what are they? Oh, uh, well. Um, uh, let me pull out the iPad and take a look and I'll tell ethics. you ethics. And I said, well, that's a very good one to have. What are the others? And I said, well, uh, let me open up my laptop and I'll tell you, well, let's see, that's the height of arrogance in business because if the executives don't know the guiding principles, I mean, how arrogant, I mean, to believe that the workers and the people that actually make things happen would know what they are. But if an organization has six or seven guiding principles that dictate the way they do business, it becomes the tool for decision-making. I mean, they either look at an opportunity and they say, it fits the guiding principles, let's go. Or they look at an opportunity and they say, sorry, I mean, it's very appealing, but it doesn't fit our guiding principles, so the answer is no. When you have an organization where everyone truly knows these guiding principles, decisions 
are made like that. There's no need to study stuff. There's no need for endless rounds of meetings. There's no need for everybody to come to meetings and have voice and be listened to and be heard. Decisions get made like this when there's a set of guiding principles. I actually believe that that is one of the keys to speed, the key to speed. And you're talking about clarity. People are very clear about what's going on in the organization, where the organization is going. Uh, exactly. And sadly, I would suggest to you uh, that that doesn't happen. Pick a number. At 95, 97, 98% of all human organizations, whether it's uh, Mabel's Corner Cafe in downtown Boise, or whether it's a small landscaping company in Omaha, or whether it's a medium-sized manufacturer of widgets in uh, uh, Illinois, or whether it's a large company, uh, there's very, very little clarity. Clarity is everyone knowing the purpose of the organization and everyone knowing the six or seven guiding principles that say, this is the way we conduct business. Uh, here's who we are. Here's who we're trying to be. And, and, and these are the things that we stand for. And they're absolutely... Uh, um, they're, they're not apologetic about having this set of six or seven guiding principles. They're not afraid to look at somebody and say, you know, if you buy into these six or seven guiding principles, which we consider to be right, just, and noble, we invite you to come and join us. If you don't, doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it does mean that you would not fit in here because these are the things that we hold sacrosanct that everybody knows and how we conduct ourselves and how we conduct our business. Just that one and that's simple. That is simple. Just that one simple act, I mean, could double or triple the velocity of of any business. So this is the inaugural podcast. We're getting to know Jason Jennings a little better. And also, you have covered a number of, of topics and issues that we're going to be diving into deeper in the subsequent podcast coming on down the line. So let's, you're also the keynote speaker, along with being a best-selling author, uh, and you really do some interesting research going into every each keynote, each keynote, each being the specific word, because unlike a lot of other folks who, who will go in, walk into a hotel conference room, and talk to a thousand or so people, you have done your homework. Tell us about what that means to you as far as being prepared walking into a keynote. Well, let me, uh, let me actually tell you the story of, of how that came to be, because it was an epiphany. It was a huge moment in my life. About a decade ago, it was shortly after, um, it's not the big to eat the small, it's the fast to eat the slow had come out, and I was working on less is more, maybe less is more had just come out. Microsoft was getting set to fly several hundred CEOs of their largest OEMs, uh, original equipment manufacturers, to a remote destination uh, in Australia uh, for a several-day conference. And they were looking for someone to open the conference and close it. Uh, Urban legend has it they looked at 197 different authors. They boiled it down to four finalists. And the way it was going to work was this. They were going to have a one-hour telephone call, and each finalist would have 15 minutes to answer some questions. And then presumably, at the end of the hour, they were going to uh, make their decision. And so by the luck of the draw, I had the first 15 minutes, and then I'd get knocked off, and I'd be replaced by finalist number two. The, the company considered the event so important. It was their 25th birthday that uh, Bill Gates was on the call. Uh, Steve Ballmer was listening in on the call because uh, they really had to make the right choice. And so I had never met Bill Gates before that time. And uh, so after a few minutes of, of pleasantries, uh, in his inimitable kind of squeaky voice, he said, uh, Mr. Jennings, uh, 
He said, if we hire you, exactly what are you going to tell these people? And I paused, looking for a competitive advantage. And I said, with all due respect, I've always believed that prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And for me to sit here today and tell you what I would tell these people without talking to some of them, I think is the height of arrogance. And he said, you'd actually talk to some of these people? And I said, I would insist on it, or I wouldn't do the engagement. And he said, uh, hire this guy, uh, cancel the others. And uh, they got me a list of, of, of 10 names, 10 of the CEOs who were going to be there. I mean, how hard can it be to get on the telephone with the CEO for 10, 15, or 20 minutes and ask them about their business, ask them about their challenges, ask them for their story? But that's not the magic. The magic is when I stood up in front of this group, and after the opening joke or story, whatever it was, I don't recall, I looked out at this, and these were tough, wheezing, hard CEOs. I mean, the heads of Hewlett Packard and Fujitsu and Sony, I mean, people who'd been there and done that. And You see the arms crossed and people saying, I dare you to tell me something yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But after the opening story, I looked out at the audience and I said, over the past couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to reach out to many of you. And one of the questions I asked you is, what are the challenges you're facing? And I want to show you what you told me, because that's what we're going to talk about today. And all of a sudden, I saw every bum pull forward on chairs. I saw people take out pens. I saw them open pads of paper. And I remember standing there gazing skyward and saying, God, I'll tell you what. I am never in my lifetime ever going to do a speech without doing my homework. And so my homework is essentially very simple. Uh, first of all, we get a lot of requests for speeches. I do 80 a year. We probably get 20 to 30 calls a week. So we have to say no a lot. And so it's easy to say no to the people and the companies that you don't want to align your brand with and you don't want to be with. Um, however, one of the requirements is I need to spend an hour with the CEO. I need to spend an hour with the man or the woman who is leading the organization. I need to find out the story of the company through their eyes. Uh, their their hopes and dreams and aspirations for the organization. Uh, I, it's kind of a litmus test for me. I want to see what kind of a person they are. And then I always ask them about the challenges uh, that they're facing. What, what are the potential roadblocks or stumbling blocks that they might encounter? And then once I do that, then I ask for the names of 10 people uh, who are going to be at the conference uh, from varying levels within the organization. I'd like some new people, some old people, men, women, uh, uh, all ethnicities, I mean, all different types, all the constituencies from all the stakeholders. And then how hard can it be, I mean, to do uh, these 10 to 12 interviews for each speech? And I tell people, and I don't, I don't mean to be smug about this, but by the time I've spent an hour interviewing or talking to the CEO, by the time I've done these 10 or 12 phone calls, um, the speech virtually writes itself. I mean, it becomes obvious the things that I need to talk about. And the only thing I can imagine, Dale, every time I'm being introduced and I'm walking onto a stage in front of an audience, I keep thinking, what in the world would I be thinking or what would I be prepared to say if, if, if I hadn't done this research, I, I mean, I've reached a point in my life where I just think it's the height of arrogance uh, to stand up in front of a group of people and presume to know what's going on in the world, to presume to know what their challenges and issues are. Uh, that, that is the height of arrogance. I, I, I guess once in a while you might have a hit and, and sometimes you don't. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got a call, I'm not going to mention the name, from, from another well-known business author. And I'd never met him. Uh, I really don't make it a point of, of knowing uh, and meeting my competition. 
but I'm, I'm always collegial. And so I took the phone call and I said, well, it's, it's very nice that you called me. And he said, well, I have one question for you. And I said, what's that? He said, what the hell are you trying to do? And I, 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 I said, excuse me? He said, are you trying to ruin it for everybody? Well, I didn't know what the guy was talking about. And I said, excuse me? I mean, I was just, I almost fell off my chair. He said, last year you did this speech for this big convention. I said, yeah, I know who they were. They were wonderful, wonderful people. He said, well, they're using me this year. And damn it, they expect me to go through all that BS that you did last year. He said, you're ruining it for everybody else out there. And I just sat back and I smiled and grinned. And I thought, good. Good, uh, Jason. Good. Uh, you lucked out. You're ruining it for everybody else. That's fine. I, I, you know, if you force everybody else to up their game, uh, the whole industry just gets better, right? And you're walking the talk and what you write in your books, which is terrific. Let's, we're, we're running out of time, but the, the title of the podcast is The Game Changers with Jason Jennings. We're talking about leadership lessons in speed, productivity, growth, innovation, and reinvention. It's really a chance for the listeners to, to hear straight from your heart about what's going on and, and get an opportunity to see you when uh, you're so busy. Uh, excuse me, get an opportunity to hear you and hear your thoughts when you're so busy. What do you want listeners to walk away from this with to be able to build their business, improve their business, be better people, better business Well, people? today I guess we were uh, essentially going to lay some groundwork and uh, talk a little bit about my background, which, which we've done. But I was just sitting here thinking that uh, there's one big, pretty significant nugget that we that we did briefly touch on today. I, I always want to have a takeaway for people. And uh, so that one takeaway, well, so the reason I do what I do, as I said, it is, it is my thrill of helping lead principled people to their full economic potential. I, I truly believe, uh, and this is going to sound very cold, but I truly believe that ultimately at the end of the day, the only freedom is economic freedom. Uh, any freedom any government gives you, they can take away from you. Uh, but when you have economic freedom, you can live where you want. You can eat what you want. You can send your kids to school where you want. You can drive what you want, get health care where you want. And, and so I love giving people the gift of, of economic freedom. And, and so why I do what I do, it's, it's that thrill of helping lead people to their full economic potential, which hopefully results uh, in them having economic freedom. And, and I think a good starting point um, is, uh, as an individual listening, uh, to spend some time over the next several days thinking, what are your six or seven guiding principles by which you make all of your business decisions? And by the way, there's wide-ranging applicability to your personal life as well with these. And I mean, what a, what a wonderful starting point to say these are the six or seven guiding principles by which I'm going to make decisions. I promise you that that act in itself uh, will have big ramifications on not only your business but your personal life as well. And it's so important to write those down. Don't just think of them as you're driving, listening to this podcast, but literally – Get them on. Paper. You got to write them down. You got to remember them, and then you got to start talking about them uh, to other people. I, I mean, you really have to start talking about them to other people. You've got to initiate that conversation. All right, Jason Jennings. The podcast is the Game Changers, and we'll be back with another topic next week. We're talking about the need for a culture of growth and uh, some fascinating stories that Jason's going to share with us. And Jason, thanks so much for your time today. And until next week, we'll talk to you later. Dale, thanks very much. 
You've been listening to The Game Changers, leadership lessons in speed, productivity, growth, innovation, and reinvention with business thought leader, best-selling author, and keynote speaker, Jason Jennings. Read Jason's most recent New York Times bestseller, The Reinventors, and visit his website at jason-jennings.com.